the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is. He checked my ID at the door, and they found out I'm... Still not part of the witness protection program yet. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. Trust you're doing well. And boy, my, 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 do we have a lot to talk about on today's program. Coming up tonight, our number two. It will be our weekly Church of the Week. And uh, we, of course, every Thursday at 6 p.m., highlight a different Bay Area pastor. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on in the program as we lead off the show tonight. Conversations with Related to threats over the debt ceiling and scaring the bejeebers out of Wall Street and even the U.S. military. Members of the Senate who can barely make it to work and members of the House that uh, might barely make it out of jail. With some insights on what all this means, kind of try to put a bow on it and make it uh, make it a little bit make uh, make more sense than what it does perhaps at face value we're joined by author constitutional lawyer and educator mr joe murray you ain't nothing but a I'm sorry, that was left over from a previous guest. I have a little mistake back in the engineering there. I, I apologize, Joe. That was completely unintentional. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's what I was going to say about George Santos. <laughs> that's, uh, that, for, for the benefit of listeners, that's a bit of an inside joke. Let me put it this way. As, as an educator, um, Joe is multi-talented, and we'll just, we'll just leave it for you at that. All right, my friend, let's, let's get down to cases here tonight. Lots to unpack, and I want to perhaps speak to the one issue at the start that has the potential for having the greatest impact on all of us, and that is this ongoing struggle over the debt ceiling. Now, when you're 31 and growing trillion dollars in debt, you you wouldn't think it would matter, but the fact of the matter is it does. A meeting on the debt ceiling crisis that was supposed to be between the president and congressional leaders scheduled for tomorrow has been postponed. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Charles Schumer, House Majority Minority Leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries and, um, of course, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, I think I mentioned, and uh, Kevin McCarthy were expected to take part in the meeting that has been set aside for the moment. Economists are warning that if a agreement over the debt ceiling cannot be achieved, and according to Janet Yellen, Joe, it needs to be done by June 1st, it could have dire global consequences economically. Meanwhile, top Pentagon officials are warning of the impact a debt default would have on the U.S. military. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said a default could put troops pay in danger and be of benefit to China. And then chiming in is the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, a guy by the name of uh, Jamie Dimon. And Jamie Dimon says a U.S. default could cause financial 
panic. I have to wonder, though, Joe, this is not our first time that this game has been played uh, in Congress. And I just have to wonder from your perspective, are we playing chicken here because we know it's an election year next year? Is this a serious debate trying to get a hold of spending in the United States? What do you make of all this? No, I think, well, I don't like to say chicken because I, I like to put it as we're in the back seat of Thelma and Louise's convertible right now. <laughs> so the only question are we doing, are we, are we pushing the gas further? Or are we letting her put up the gas? Because he, here's the deal. As long as we keep up with this spending, as long as we keep up printing money at, at record rates and, and creating a lot of pork that we're funding, we'll default. It's a question of not if, but when. So it's not willing to give up our spending habits, which has become more seen after COVID. COVID even, uh, it was amazing the amount of money that was wasted. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we, it was a pandemic. We did not know what we were fighting and, and we were doing what we were doing to try to help pull us out of this. But if we start looking at the accountings, the early accounting going back of how much money they had wasted, if we look at the schools, all this money that the school got, and now they're just burning through it. Uh, they're not returning it. <laughs> it's burning through it. So the question is, if we cannot stop this addiction to spending, we will default. So if, I mean, I hate to say it just because if it happens, it's going to impact so many people. But if we default, we default. I mean, it, it, it's if we're not willing to make the sacrifices that we need to do in order to put our house in fiscal order, we might as well fall and get it over and done with. Well, but, but here's part of the problem with that, as I see it, and that is... You know, oftentimes we think, well, you know, for the example here, uh, we've got members on the Republican side of the aisle saying, hey, enough is enough. Well, we just need to start behaving ourselves here. And yet the reality is the expansion of the debt ceiling simply will allow the U.S. Treasury Department to pay the ongoing obligations. In, in a sense, it is money already spent. We've already yeah. authorized it. So this isn't, hey, let's not spend spend more. This is, let's pay the bills of the stuff we've already promised to spend. I liken it to the difference between buying a bigger house and therefore having a bigger mortgage versus paying the mortgage on the house you already have. And, and I think that's what's a bit frightening about this. And that is that, you know, traditionally, I don't think either side, historically, Joe, has really taken this seriously, meaning when Democrats are in control, they love to tax and spend and Republicans are in control. They love to borrow and spend. The one commonality between the two, they just love to spend. And that's how I equate it uh, somewhat similar. I equate it to that, you know, we have, a, we have a house, we have two cars, and probably have a second mortgage on the house, and we're already looking at getting a new Lincoln Navigator. That's how I equate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're right. We, we, this is money, and I think that's a great point. This is money that is already spent that we're trying to pay back. And I think the point is that's why we have to kind of put the brakes on this new expenditure. And, and neither party has been willing to do it because they've been having this conversation for, for quite some time. And if you look at the foreign companies that hold, or the foreign nations that hold our debt, it's Japan and China atop the list. Uh, so, I mean, if we do default, what will happen? Well, immediately, if it's not already going to happen in the next five years, we no longer be the reserve currency. And the reason that becomes problematic for this country is that if you are not the reserve currency for the world, you cannot print money endlessly. Uh, that comes with a huge consequence. 
So if we lose that ability, we're going to have to start cutting, and it's going to be draconian cuts that are going to send us into shock. And, and, and that is a point I don't think people are really grasping that if the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, luxuries that we have enjoyed that have allowed us to either borrow and spend or tax and spend, they come screeching to a halt, or we're going to see inflation like we've never seen it before. We think this inflation is bad. Where do you see what happens if we fault and we're no longer the world uh, currency and we can do to spend? Um, I mean, I think we'll probably be $100 at that rate. It'll be insane. But I, but I think you're right. You know, it, it's ridiculous that having these, these conversations because, Craig, I think ever since you and I started talking back in 2007, we've always had a conversation about this at least two or three times a year. And and I have to ask ourselves, over the almost 25 years we've been talking about it, has anything really changed? Well, you know, to your point, no, nothing has changed at all except that the debt continues to rise. But I, I, let me complicate this for a moment, Joe, because it's easy for you or I, from our perspective, to uh, point fingers at the White House, at the Capitol building and say, yeah, boy, those stinkers back in Washington, D.C., they just keep spending money like crazy. But, you know, there's another party that is participatory in all of this. And if you want to know who he is or who she is, if you're driving right now, just for a quick second, lean over and look into the rearview mirror. Uh, The most predominant face that you'll see will be yours. Now, let me hasten to add that while we might not be direct participants, I think part of the problem, Joe, is when we say, okay, stop borrowing money, stop spending money we don't have. Doesn't that necessarily equate into, well, there's going to be some programs that are going to be cut and we're going to do less in infrastructure and maybe entitlement programs like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Some of those programs uh, might have to experience reductions and we might see a reduction in services provided to military veterans. And what about the upkeep of the United States military to protect the U.S.? I mean, you know, the problem here is it's it's more complicated than just saying Congress stops spending, because at the end of the day, even though there might be political motivation behind it all, aren't they really just spending for you and me? Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think a prime example was during the pandemic, which, you know, it finally is over tonight, Greg. So we have something to celebrate. <laughs> I know it's over. But, um, you know, I remember when those stimulus payments came out and for a number of people, that were getting these, what was it, 2,100, I can't remember. They were getting these checks, and these people were still working. Yeah. So the government was paying, this was supposed to, to help those, especially that had lost their job, especially in the more of the service industry that had been almost decimated because you couldn't go out, you were hermits, but yet they were sending them to everyone. And, you know, if our country was really concerned about spending, the people that got them that had jobs, you know, should no, we don't need this. We're going to send this back. But see, that's not how it, it works because in our mind, we're like, well, if somebody else is getting it, then I want it to. And I see that. I, I see that. But when you're, you're a country that is teetering on the, the verge of, of default, you have to think about, you're right, not the actions of Congress, but our own personal actions. It's so much easier just to point our finger at them and say, ha those men and women out there are spending their money. Well, A, we're taking it, and B, we keep sending them back. So. Yeah, and that that's a big part of the equation, absolutely. And, you know, the other thought, too, is when all of that stimulus money came out, you know, we had some discussions. 
And the irony was, for the people that needed it the most, that were most desperate, it wasn't going to be life-changing. In other words, it wasn't enough to pay Mm -hmm. the mortgage for a month or the rent for a month. It it might have helped ease a little bit of the stress, but just a little and just for a short period of time. A lot of Americans took it and said, well, good, I'm going to use this to pay off some bills. So that meant that there was no stimulus taking place to the economy. You were just paying for what you had already bought. And for those that didn't need the money at all. It went into the bank. Maybe it got set aside for a vacation. Really had no effect whatsoever. So the whole notion of it being to provide emergency relief and stimulate the economy, I think, largely failed on both points. But here's what it did do. It significantly helped to increase the amount of indebtedness the United States has. And and Joe, you mentioned something there right toward the end of your comment that I think is a, a, a great segue into our next segment. And that is that, well, you know, we keep demanding that they spend the money, and those that do, we keep sending back to Washington, D.C. Now, we didn't mention Diane Feinstein's name, but now that I brought her up, let's talk about her around the corner. She has returned, triumphantly or not, to the Senate after nearly a three-month absence. But the demands for her resignation, particularly amongst Democrats, has not waned at all. Let's talk a bit about this. Maybe a good segue into term limits and whether or not there ought to be age limits for seated members of the House and the Senate. With us today is author, constitutional lawyer, educator, and sometimes star of stage, Mr. Joe Murray. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Conversation with educator, author, and constitutional lawyer Joe Murray continues on this Thursday edition of Lifeline, looking at some of the top stories of the week and their impact on your life. Well, today, with a fair amount of fanfare, Senator Dianne Feinstein returned to the Senate following a nearly three-month absence. But in spite of this, the resignation calls from Democrats continue. Now, Joe, I, I'm sympathetic, uh, certainly remembering back to the tragic days of November 1978, when uh, we had uh, not only a member of the Board of Supervisors, but our mayor, George Moscone, assassinated. Diane Feinstein suddenly, as the president of the, um, uh, the board, had to step in. And um, not only bring about a sense of calm and peace to a city that had lost its mind, um, but take over the reins of leadership of the city of San Francisco. And I think she did a gallant uh, and and, uh, wonderful job in the early days. Her performance in the United States Senate, well, we don't always agree on policy. But there comes a time, I think, when one has to acknowledge maybe you stayed a bit too long at the fair. And uh, not only is that, I think, an opinion of a majority of Republicans, to be sure, but even a growing number of Democrats say, Dianne Feinstein, it's just time to go. She is um, the oldest living member of the United States Senate at 89 years old. She'll be well into her 90s by the time her term ends. She's promised not to run for re-election in 2024. Uh, It just brings up, I think, questions once again, and this largely gets ignored, but maybe we need to stop ignoring it, whether or not there ought to be term limits and or age limits for members of the House and the Senate. Well, you know, I've always been against term limits just because term limits have always signaled to me that we think the people are too dumb to to vote. Uh, I know that's probably a harsh way of putting it, but I've always thought that, you know, we, the people, 
are the building term limit. And we should be getting what we vote for. Now, what the other part you said, I think, is very uh, fair. I think age limits are in, in, in play. You can't go to be a U.S. senator at the age of 18. Uh, you, you, there is a requirement. You have to meet a certain age. So it would make perfect sense that at the end, there should be a age limit that you say, okay, or better yet, you know, put some type of competency test in there. Just like we have the stuff safe with the president. You know, we it was talked about a lot during President Trump about, you know, oh, well, we might, we might need to have a competency. We might not be able to have it. We might not have the facilities. I think those are viable conversations to have because when you have someone like Diane Feinstein, or Feinstein who, has, who has served her country, now, I might not agree with her politically. I might think that a lot of what she's done is wrong, but you cannot argue that she has served with dignity and honor. She has, she has a very, very long career. And, and it's a shame because this is how she's going to remember that picture they showed her in the wheelchair. You look at that and it, it just, it really is shocking. And then to say, okay, well, this person now is is an important ranking person in the U.S. Senate. Does she really have the capacity to make these decisions? Is her competency there? And, and these are very like questions. But right now, there's not much we can do about it. Well, and I think what it turns the spotlight on her situation. And again, I, I want to be very clear that I am very sensitive to what she's been suffering with shingles. It's a terrible, terrible thing to have and and very painful too. any of you that ever dealt with it. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It can be painful to the point of being debilitating. That said. Here we sit with such a delicate balance between both chambers, quite frankly, and we've heard the hue and cry from a number of leading Democrats here in California that say, you know, absent her on the Senate Judiciary Committee, there has been a complete deadlock. They can't get any work done. And at some point, I think it bears the question, really, what the priority is. Uh, You know, an individual's health is important to the individual. But what about the business of the country and the the notion that they can't get any work done because they're missing a member of the Judiciary Committee? And it's such a tight uh, balance that, you know, it just brings everything. it It brings legislation and the ability of, in this case, the Senate to do its job, to a standstill, and I think that's problematic. And and the other thing, too, I think back to people like Strom Thurmond, who served all the way to the age of 100. Now, I, I know some fairly decrepit 35-year-olds, and I know some brilliant 90-year-olds, but at some point, I think we all recognize that the older we get, our ability to think on our feet, our ability to, to, to be able to just, you know, engage in debate and critical thinking wanes as we grow older. It's just a natural natural byproduct of the aging process. So, you know, then the question, I guess, becomes, Joe, what do you think the chances are of getting an age limit or at least some kind of a a competency test so that members that are serving in either the House or the Senate are capable of serving the very people that elected them? I don't think it's it's very high. And if you look at this, I mean, I, I think you eloquently put it that her situation, which I think we should all be very mindful of and we should be compassionate towards, is crippling not only the U.S. Senate, but if we want to really be partisan, it's crippling the Democratic agenda. And she is a Democrat. So we have to ask ourselves, when you're that age and you're, you're suffering what you're suffering, you know, and you've had such a long career, decades, decades okay, why not call it quits? Why not go out uh, on your own arms? 
And it's that obsession with power because it's not like she's worrying that, oh, you know, like some of the Supreme Court justices have to do, oh, well, this president's in power and I step down, then he's going to replace me with someone that's different from me. We know if Einstein steps down, we're not going to get, we're not going to get some Ted Cruz in there. Right. We know that that it would be still a safe seat. If we had a Republican governor and and that was the case, then then I would say, okay, maybe she's got the point. Is there a doubt in the mind of anybody listening to our conversation that Gavin Newsom would not appoint? And that's who will make the appointment. Gavin Newsom will not appoint a Democrat to replace and finish out her term. I mean, at this, it it goes without saying. So then I think you've kind of hinted at it, Joe. The question becomes, is she continuing to serve for her sake or for the sake of the country? Yeah. And that's what I don't understand because if I, you know, we don't, we're not there. I've not been alongside with her. I've not been in her home. But I'm like, if you're reading the reports and you read what this poor woman is going through, you know, why? What benefit? It's not. There's no real tangible benefit for her staying here, other than the fact that you can still claim you're a U.S. senator with all the power and privileges. And I think that is the conversation we should be having. Is that? And this isn't just a Democrat thing. As you said, it, it, it deals with power and 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 power taking a hold on people and, and and kind of shading their judgment. And I think what we do, if we were truly honest, we would say, look, we need to have certain points. Say when you hit 75 or when you hit 80, we at least start having competency and have more physicals and have the ability to say, hey, look, uh, you need to go. Um, but right now, I, I think you'd have AARP, you'd have a lot of people uh, very up in arms on that, saying it's ages, whatever whatever the, the, the ist is with that. And, and I think that's the problem where we are right now. We can no longer have open and honest conversations because some special interest, some identity group is going to come up and claim that you're discriminating. And we're not. We see a country and the Senate, and the Senate is, is, is coming to a halt, which, honestly, I'm really not too upset about. Oh, I'm with you on that one. I, believe me, that's not the point of my complaint. <laughs> Anytime they can't work, it means they can't screw something up. So I'm not, that's on both sides, too, by the way. I think, God forbid, if there was ever any sort of emergency or any sort of crucial issue, we would be at the, the best of someone who is clearly not in good health and who might not be able to make it. And, you know, and to, I'm not living, but to the vote. Exactly. And constitutionally, our founding fathers did not create a country that would survive on gridlock, where it's designed to get the job done to serve the American people. And health concerns, uh, while tragic, if it prevents you from discharging your duties, then it's time for a change. That's just, I think, uh, well, I know for a fact it's my opinion, and I think it's it's a pretty practical approach. All right. Well, from members of the United States Senate who are challenged physically from serving to possibly a member of the United States House that might have an even more difficult time doing it from the wrong side of jail, possibly. I'll tell you more about that is our conversation with constitutional lawyer, author, and educator Joe Murray, author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. You can get it online at Amazon.com. Back with more after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I, uh, as I introduce this next segment, have to acknowledge, kind of put the disclaimer up front, that probably nobody in this audience is surprised at the notion that politicians, they lie. But boy, <laughs> the story we're about to tell. How about the uh, newly minted member of the House that um, touted a resume 
speaking to his tremendous achievements at a major bank that he never worked for. His 3.89 grade point average he earned at a college that he never attended. His proudness on the volleyball court winning awards there in a game he's never played at a school he never went to. The houses that he claimed he was building that he never owned and the sports cars that he said he drove that he also didn't know. Turns out that while he insists his mother died in New York on 9-11, that never happened. And now we've seen a 31-count indictment handed down against George Santos, a man who seems to trade as much in being a con man as he does a politician. Uh, Joe Murray, I think the remarkable thing about the George Santos story, he, of course, a um, newbie congressman out of New York, is that it's the story that just keeps on giving. Every day there seems to be some new fabrication tied back to him. And maybe the most astonishing thing, or maybe not, is that when he's confronted with all of this, he looks you straight in the face, he looks the camera straight in the face and says, yeah, I did, and yeah, I lied, but, you know, it's tough getting elected a member of Congress. Wow, wow, wow. What do you think of all this? You know, and I forget who his opponent is, but I'd fire their oppo team research. (laughs) Yeah, no no doubt. No doubt. (laughs) I mean, come on. You would think in today's digital age, if you have an oppo team, you'd be able to pull stuff out right away. You know, he is, like you said, the gift that keeps on giving, and he is a total traffic. And, and, uh, you know, again, showing some of the major issues we have, with, with dealing with our elected officials who decide to act in a not-so-good way. But l- let me just say, as the lawyer in me, the criminal defense lawyer in me, says we have to say he is innocent to proven guilty but, guilty, but as you just said, that makes it even more hard to do when he's out there admitting to things that he has done. So um, what can we do? So, you know, nothing right now. Um, there is nothing that will prevent a... a Congresswoman or a congressman who has been charged with a felony for serving. And really, there's nothing that would do anything if they were convicted. Now, really, the only remedy that Congress has at its disposal is expulsion. Now, expulsion is going to carry a two-thirds majority. They have to get two-thirds of Congress to agree to it, which you and I both know. Good luck with that. Um, And I think it has only been done a handful of times. Uh, I want to say maybe five, six times. I might be wrong on that. Uh, And really the last time that it has ever happened is Jim African. I don't know if you remember Jim from Ohio, the Ohio Democrat with that lovely hairdo. that kind of. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was the last guy in Congress who was, what was the vote? I, th- I want to say it was either four, I think it was, no, I think one person voted. I think he voted and not expel himself, but pretty much everybody voted against him but him. Uh, and he was the last guy, and he had bribery and racketeering charters and all that stuff. So, it, you know, in the course of our history, 200-plus-year history, and the fact that Congress changes quite rapidly and, re- and steadily, um, we've only had about five or six people expelled. So that doesn't look to happen. Now, I think Santos might be in the trafficking category. Uh, I think if he is found guilty, I think that would give the Republicans the cover they need to 
to kick the guy to the curb. Uh, let me ask you a, a question, Joe, and I'm, I'm going to dramatically shift the conversation in in the remaining moments here in this segment. Um, in, instead of asking you to put on your educator's hat or your your lawyer's hat, uh, I want you to put on your, your your spiritual cap, your believer's hat, for a moment. Yes. What does this say? of the current state of politics in America, maybe more broadly, American culture and society today, where now cutting the voters of New York some slack, they perhaps, as you point out, lack of good oppo research, maybe didn't know the vast majority of these details when they voted for the man. But the fact that he can get up and blatantly admit to the degree, the extreme degree of fabrication on his resume and education, for example, and not bat an eye, not feel absolute shame, not have that sense of wanting to just dig a hole and dive into it, that there isn't enough societal pressure that would say, you know, we just don't, we just don't accept or endorse people in positions of public authority and power like George Santos to be that broad at, at at blatant fabrication and outright lies. And, you know, by the time it's all said and done, when it works its way through these 13 counts, who knows what else is going to be uncovered. But is there is there maybe a broader lesson here of just the current state of politics that anyone thinks that in order to get elected, you have to lie this much and then once you get elected, it's okay to just continue, keep on lying that American voters will just tolerate it all? You know, great. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because it actually is just writing something about the lack of shame and the idea that shame is a bad thing that we teach our kids or we teach, oh, don't shame, you know, impose shame. But shame is what prevents us from engaging in destructive behavior. You know, I remember back in the day, you know, I, the nuns would love to stand on the corner of those not-so-nice shops, uh, the adult shops, and, and he would turn the corner, and the people that would go to go into the shops would see the nuns, and they turn right around, and they would leave. <laughs> because uh, there were even, I remember, because I would represent the nuns, and they were getting sued because the owners were saying they can't, they're, they're going after their business, and the nuns like, we're just standing on the corner, uh, you know, we're, we're engaging in, in our, active, our free speech activities. But, you know, you don't have that shame anymore. And, and, I, and I blame somewhat social media's corrosive impact on, on just our civilization because social media, if we're, I know it's not completely, but it, isn't it just one big lie? You, you post things that may or may not be true, so other people may or may not be jealous. And, and, and is it really a, a, a stretch to say, well, politicians are going to, that have always kind of embellished the truth to get elected, they're just going to flat out lie now and see if they can get caught. And, and even when they do get caught in, in the way that we live, you can just say it's a lie that you didn't do it. And now we don't know what to believe anymore, especially with AI coming about. Uh, artificial intelligence is going to complicate this. We have deep fake photos, deep fake stories, deep fake voices. I really do fear, uh, Craig, that in the next 10 years or so, we are not going to know what's true and what's not. Mm. And, and you put that to the fact that humanity is, is naturally flawed, that we're inherently flawed, and you keep putting barriers between us and God and, and the righteousness, uh, it's going to be scary in the next uh, decade or so. Well, and, and you and know I, what? I the, the, there, there's so, so much tremendous wisdom in what you're saying right now, because you're going to reach a point where if people just don't know what to believe, don't know where to look for the truth, can no longer 
you know, uh, recognize the truth, they're going to begin to conclude that there is no truth. Or, or you know, the yeah. old adage, somebody that will that believes in nothing will likely be, fall for anything. And that's the real danger here. You have to wonder, you know, in a society where people don't have any sense of guilt and shame, you have to wonder, well, what's being taught in American homes these days? What's being taught in America's churches uh, for those that attend? Uh, that there isn't that greater sense of, you know, there's a line that you just don't cross. And sadly, that, that line for a long time kept getting moved. Now, as you're suggesting, maybe even with the advent of, of AI, it's going to push you to the point where that, might, that line might just be a totally one day erased. And isn't that the devil's whole plan, is that yep. you no longer have the truth, but the truth is everything, and if everything's the truth, then nothing's the truth. And we live in a cloud of chaos. And that, that seems to be the game plan. And, and, and the problem that I have is how willingly we're going along with it. And how, how we have no problem that our younger generations, this is their norm. They're being brought up uh, in, in this type of environment where they are living lies on social media, where they, they think it's okay to bully on social media. And that, because if you think about it all and on, and I know we're, we're short on time, but if it comes down to this, human beings love to justify and rationalize. They will go out of their way to bend over backwards to rationalize and justify their behavior because it's easier than facing the truth. And what we're seeing is in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have all these devices that are going to probably do it for us. And if we don't have that sense of shame, that sense of, of, of course correction, then, as I said at the beginning of the hour, we're going to be in the backseat of Thelma and Louise convertible. And right over we go. Yeah, right over the cliff. And, you know, Scripture talks about uh, knowing the truth and that the truth will set you free. So I suppose then we can easily conclude just the opposite, that absent of the truth, you will remain a captive. And in this case, captive of the enemy. You know, folks, these are not easy conversations to have, but I think we need to get them started because uh, if we don't, um, yeah, as Joe Apley points out, we're going to see the whole thing, boom, right over the cliff. American culture and society as we know it. We've met the enemy, and he is us. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, author, and educator. His book, Take Back Education, available through Amazon.com. Joe, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights, my friend. Have yourself a great remainder of the week. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to turn corner and deal with another topic, uh, one that, quite frankly, a lot of us rebel against, we, we struggle with. We've heard passages of Scripture regarding now the wives should submit themselves to their husbands, and of course, we, we sometimes uh, uh, sort of recoil at that idea and, and then fail to recognize the second portion of that Scripture says that husbands should, should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and we know how Christ loved the church. He gave his very life for it. But this whole issue of learning how to submit and what submission means is something that a lot of us, quite frankly, struggle with. Uh, certainly in our fallen condition, uh, the sense of wanting to rebel, not submit, seems to come more naturally. But at the end of the day, when we talk about being able to deepen our relationship with God, is it really about rebelling or is it about submitting? Joining me now, best-selling author, radio talk show host, his program Road to Reality. He has authored over 200 books, some of which bestsellers selling more than 2 million copies. And he, of course, is the founder and international director of Gospel for Asia, Dr. K.P. Yohannan. And K.P., great to have you back on the show. 
Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you. Boy, this whole idea of submission, we kind of get uncomfortable with that idea, don't we? The, the idea of being able to kind of lay down to yield our our will to God, that's something that most of us just don't really cuddle up to. Yeah, you know, uh, when you think about it, Anytime you, you hear the word submission or uh, surrender, naturally uh, our hearts um, go cold and uh, we, don't, we don't like to hear that. And one of the reasons is, you know, the, the, the abuse of leaders and authority and, uh, you know, husbands. Um, and I think um, we naturally resist that. But the, the truth of the matter is this, that someone who is truly following the Lord um, they, they, they want to please the Lord and that also involves in um, embracing humility and submitting to authority even when there are difficulties we have to deal with you know think about David who absolutely uh, knew God and God anointed him and here he was in a difficult situation under King Saul and David had every chance in the world and of course you know he would be justified to kill Saul and um, uh, inherit what was already given to him by God but he would not do that he said I cannot do it and I cannot raise my hand against God's anointed even when Saul was you know uh, a man who walked away from God and I think there, there need to be a deep understanding of godliness uh, by our absolute surrender to God and his ways and uh, our problem in America or in the church uh, honestly I do not think it is uh, huge abuse of authority rather it is um, uh, people that uh, we, we do not want to uh, die to self and uh, be willing to uh, walk under the authority of God. It's interesting that you would single out David. Many of us would sort of regard him instantly as being this tremendous man of God. He's known as a man that has heart after God, a tremendous leader, and yet not really recognizing that perhaps one of his greatest attributes, one of his greatest strengths, was his ability to submit to God's authority. And, you know, trusting in God's sovereignty. You know, the scripture says in First John, someone says that, you know, I love God so much, the God that you cannot see, but then do not love those that he can see, the scripture says he is a liar or she is a liar. The truth is not in that person. So uh, when we live on earth, uh, acknowledging God's sovereignty, you know, and, and trust him um, and, and submit to him, as long as the authority don't ask us to violate God's law and disobey God. And, uh, you know, uh, there are times, um, you know, I talk about that in the book, uh, when the authority asks us to violate God's word, we, we cannot uh, say, okay, I do whatever you tell me to do. Uh, but I, I really believe uh, when you have 65% divorce rate um, in our evangelical uh, homes, or 82% of the young people who grew up in Bible-believing churches leave the church when they leave home, and um, the broken families, uh, there has to be some explanation to this. And I think we are uh, 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 self-willed, arrogant, proud, stubborn people uh, that we will, we, we will not give up and we'll fight. And um, uh, someone who wants to know God and be godly, I think Jesus 
lived in absolute submission to his father, which also reflected in his submission to his parents, who were not, you know, you know, angels. They were fallen people. How he lived. Uh, obeying his father which was reflected in his life on earth and I think the Lord calls us to uh, follow him um, and I think Romans 13 very clearly talks about that you know I'm uh, you know uh, not the one who promote that we go around and fight with everybody around us but really the question is this do we truly know the living God in our life and is there godliness in us that should be the reason um, why we surrender and obey and, and live through this. And the scripture is full of illustrations to this. Uh, let's go deeper. The point that you make, uh, KP, regarding arrogance and pride and how that feeds into our culture, our society today, is, is part of the challenge here in terms of understanding what it means to wholly submit to God. The notion that quite often we equate submission with weakness and we think, well, well I, I can't possibly submit because I don't want to be seen as being weak or vulnerable? No, you see, the thing is, when you study the scripture, um, you know, submission is not weakness. As a matter of fact, the, the, the text itself, when you read about it, talks about strength under control. Um, it is um, my choosing to say, you know, I, I, I yield my rights and I do not want to fight. And, you know, Joseph had every right, every uh, reason to accuse, to fight and malign and uh, do all kind of things against, uh, you know, the, his master and his wife and so on. But you never find him complaining, murmuring, uh, fighting. And um, the, the reality uh, is this, that in the body of Christ, uh, in the local church or in the home, because we never learned what it means to die to self and denying ourselves, uh, we want God, you know, it is like in America, you say, you want the cake and eat it too. Um, it, it just don't work like that. And I think the message of the cross and dying to self and being broken and humble and being uh, not wolves but lambs following the Lord Jesus Christ um, is seen uh, in, in the way we conduct ourselves in the society, in home um, and things like that. And think about it. Uh, our very culture in the United States, as you know, I mean, we were born out of rebellion in some ways and from the uh, childhood we are taught, you know, fight for yourself, um, defend yourself and and uh, you have your rights and stand up for your rights. I'm not saying we should you know, um, you know, agree with all the dumb things going on and just lay down and somebody, you know, wipe you out. No, I, I'm, I'm talking about people that read God's word and, and trusting his sovereignty and willing to obey those um, that God placed over us. And that's what, you know, Paul writing to the slaves, their masters many times abusing them. And he says, you must obey your masters as unto the Lord. While Paul says, masters, you know, treat these people as your brothers. And Paul never promoted rebellion and fight. And uh, that is exactly what Lucifer did. Uh, he did not want to submit uh, under authority. And uh, the angel became Satan. And in all of us, there is that seed of Lucifer. By nature, we are stubborn and rebellious people. 
and so uh, we don't we don't want to experience suffering in the flesh which is the means we learn obedience and understand the ways of God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and which translates into um, walking away from uh, our rights many times and, and, and follow instruction. And fascinating that we seem to take almost a, one extreme or another position. In other words, KP, we're either independent and strong, or we're submissive and we're weak, and yet look at the image that we see of Christ, presented as both the Lion of Judah, a tremendous symbol of strength and overcoming the very gates of hell, and yet also depicted in the weakness of the Lamb that ultimately was slain on our behalf. And so we see it not as one extreme or another, but in this case, really uh, both. A look at Touching Godliness, a new book written by K.P. Yohannan, available, by the way, through Gospel for Asia. You can contact them online at gfa.org. That's gfa.org. He's authored over 200 books and the radio program syndicated on over 900 stations weekly. Dr. K.P. Yohannan, founder and international director of Gospel for Asia. And K.P. is always a delight to have you with us on the program. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.